very much. Actually, I was in here when they were practicing that earlier, and I was just thinking with them, that is such an amazing, amazing song about exalting our Lord, our great God. Well, you know, even in the songs that we've sung this morning, you know, we've sung, sung songs about the grace and the mercy of our Lord. We've, we've sung songs about His greatness. Um, and what I want to talk to you today about is it's something that in order to really understand the grace of God and His mercy, is that we really need to understand or, or try to understand His holiness. And even we've sung about ourselves today. We've sung about what we've received, our desires. But I would suggest to you that in order for us to really understand who we are, we need to understand the holiness of God. And I would tell you that this is a very hard journey to take, to try to understand the holiness of God. So we're going to take a little journey over the next 30, 40, 50, 60 minutes or so to try to do that. So pray, pray with me just for a second, if you would. Father God, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, Lord, just bow before you this morning, our great God. I just would ask today that, that you would do for us today here, all the men and women, young men and young women, children today, what none of us can do, and that is show us yourself. Reveal yourself to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. We are totally dependent on you. I pray that your word would penetrate, Lord, and that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and hearts to receive what you have for us today, Lord. Lord, show us your glory today, we pray in your strong name, Jesus. Amen. You know, back in uh, 1997, there was a book written uh, by a man named Ed Welch, and it was called, When People Are Big and God is Small. Now, this book was written more about overcoming uh, peer pressure and codependency and the fear of man. It was for those caught up in addiction. But really, the compelling part of this book is just in the title itself, When People Are Big and God is Small. And really, it's something that I think we have to wrestle with today, even in the church. And today, what I want to share with you about is how big our God is and about how holy our God is. And there's, uh, there's kind of one point that's going to permeate throughout that I really want us all to get. And that it's only in seeing God rightly that we're going to ever see ourselves rightly. It makes every difference in the world, whether you're currently a believer in Jesus Christ, how you view God, and, or as a believer in Jesus Christ, how you view God changes everything. You must see Him rightly. And one of His chief attributes, uh, and among the many attributes of God, is His holiness. Um, and one would, many would say that that's His chief attributes, that all else is consumed up or assumed up into His holiness. But one of the problems is the holiness of God is very difficult to define <clears throat> by its very nature. It's inability to be defined. Isaiah 40, 25 through 26 says, To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal? Says the Holy One. It's, parable, it's paradoxical that God's holiness is his absolute uniqueness. It's, it's about the fact that he's incomparable. That, that there's nothing to compare God to. It's his separateness, his otherness, 
And truly, we're made in His image, but we're not like Him. We are not Him, and He is not us. It's His moral perfection, His moral excellence. It's the fact that God defines everything, and nothing or no one defines God. And so we're really on an impossible task today. But we're going to go down this uh, road anyway. But to look at his, uh, his greatness and His holiness, I'd like to, here's a road map that we're going to look at today. And the first thing is perspective. I really thought about, you know, this is such a huge subject about God. How do you get any of us to, to think about God by mere words? And so we're going to look at some pictures today, a little video clip today that's going to help us maybe just resize our thinking about who this God is that, that we proclaim. And then secondly, we're going to look at the text Isaiah 6, 1-8, which is a very classic passage on the holiness of God, on His glory, on His presence, and what happens when man encounters a holy God. And then, really, the last part is just a very simple, what do we do with this? Really, what do we do with the holiness of God? So, let's start by getting some perspective. And I'm going to go quickly through this. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's go to the next slide. Let's begin by looking at our little home planet here. You sitting here this morning, us on planet Earth here. Our Earth is about 7,900 miles in diameter, which we think that's pretty big, and about 25,000 miles if you actually do the circle around the Earth. So that sounds pretty big. And, and we're one of eight planets in our solar system, our, our little small solar system, which is kind of the smallest thing we measure uh, in the universe. And the sun is at the center, which is just a small 93 million miles away. And then the edge of our solar system is 9 billion miles away from the sun. This is just our solar system. Okay, next slide. But we live in a place, and, and I, I guess I forgot about this slide, that, that in comparison to the sun, uh, 1 million Earths could fit inside the sun, about 900,000 plus. Just let that sink in a little bit. Next slide to the Milky Way galaxy. This is our solar system in the Milky Way galaxy, which is made up also of 500 other solar systems. And scientists estimating that possible tens of billions of solar systems in our galaxy. And if our solar system was the size of a quarter, the Milky Way galaxy would be the size of the North American continent. There are billions of stars in our Milky Way galaxy. And if we counted them at one per second it would take us 2,500 years in the Milky Way galaxy. Now, if we're going to measure our universe, one of the things we have to do is use light years because there's no other measurement for them. And a light year should just blow you away, one light year. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. That's a pretty, pretty good pace, wouldn't you say? Um, and if you do that for a year, you get 5.88 trillion miles equals a light year. Now, the Milky Way galaxy is 100,000 light years across. This is our one little Milky Way galaxy. Our solar system, Milky Way galaxy, 100,000 light years across. And our closest galaxy is, uh, our, our next neighbor is Andromeda, the Andromeda galaxy, which is 2.3 million light years from our galaxy. Now, if you take that from Earth, it would take about 2 million years traveling at the speed of light to get to the Andromeda galaxy. Is this starting to sink in? And what I'm expecting you to say is no. Overload, no. That we can't do this. We can't go there from here. And so, um, let's see, where was I here? It, uh, recently, the universe has been calculated 
to be at least 156 billion light years across. So next slide. So we are one of 125 billion galaxies in this picture, which is a, a notional picture of the universe, which is made up of all those galaxies. And in the observable universe, there are one billion trillion stars estimated. It's starting to sink in a little bit. Okay. Now, you've probably all heard of the Hubble telescope. What, what an amazing thing that happened for us on planet Earth when the Hubble telescope in the early 90s began to, to bring back pictures of things that we could never see, things that we would never set our eyes on. So I just want to take you through a little bit of a, a tour here um, of the beauty and the power and the majesty of our universe. Okay, let's go to the first. And I'm just going to read a passage of Scripture while Brad just moves through these. And these are actual pictures taken by Hubble of our universe. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The ones who leads forth their hosts by numbers he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of His might and the strength of His power, now one of them is missing. These are just majestic pictures of our great God's universe. And you do know that He spoke them out and created them. And what I want to show you next is, and, and this is kind of a bonus for coming to church today, no, pop, no popcorn, but there's going to be about a seven-minute video clip. And this is from uh, Louis Giglio would tour with Matt Redman and, and uh, Chris um, Tomlin, thank you very much, uh, on this indescribable tour where they would, and I got to see this in Auburn uh, years ago, and it just moved me. And so this is just a seven-minute clip, and what is going to, just to set it up for you, He's going to start talking about the sun, and he's just going to take us through a little tour of our solar system, okay? So, so nothing really big that we've just talked about, uh, and I want you to get these visuals and thoughts in your head before we move on. So, can we kick that off? Can, low, can we lower the lights in? his mouth. 
So we're looking at something so intense that we don't want to get any closer than 93 million miles away, which is what we are right now. And then we read that God just breathes out stars. It's crazy to think about it. A million times the size of the earth. So here's a little perspective that sort of changed my life. If the earth were the size of a golf ball, okay, the sun would be 15 feet in diameter. Okay, that didn't seem to move anybody either, so let me try it a different way. Let me just try it just a different way. I thought I might need this, so I brought a golf ball, okay? So all through the evening, this is going to represent Earth, all right? So this is where we are. I need everybody in the building to look as closely as you can and find yourself, okay? And when you've found yourself, I want you to nod your head so that I know you've located you on the Earth, okay? You nod your head? Okay, you found yourself. If the Earth were a golf ball, the sun would be 15 feet in diameter. That's not 15 feet diameter. Can we blow that up just a hair and maybe give them 15 feet diameter? So here's a little perspective for you, okay? Is this working for anybody? Here we are on the Earth, and that's the sun. It's so big, it's so big, you could put 960,000 Earths inside the sun. So if the Earth were a golf ball and the, and the sun were 15 feet in diameter, you could put 960,000 golf balls inside that 15-foot diameter sun. That's enough golf balls, by the way, because I know that seems like a big number, to fill a school bus with golf balls could fit inside the 15-foot diameter sun, it's a massive star, and it's one of hundreds of billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy, our cul-de-sac in the neighborhood called the cosmos that God has made. I love science, and science has just brought us the largest star they found. It's called, are you ready for this, Canis Majoris. Now, I'm no linguist, but that's a cool name for the biggest star we've found so far. I think that means the big dog star, and that's exactly what it is. I bring it to you as a little bitty purple, you know, glow just to the right of center there. But Canis Majoris, oh, wow. If the earth were a golf ball, Canis Majoris would be the height of Mount Everest. Almost six miles above sea level, the highest point on the planet, and I just dare you to get up there and unzip the parka and pull out your golf ball. You could fit seven quadrillion Earths inside Canis Majoris. That's enough Earths if the Earth were a golf ball to cover the entire state of Texas in golf balls 22 inches deep. You see the one you're on? Maybe this will help a, a little bit more. This absolutely blew my mind. Just a little journey through our solar system. Everyone knows our planets and sort of how we fit in to the story here. You see really quickly that we're not even the biggest deal in our own solar system, but as Earth comes by, you have to know tonight that we are living on a privileged planet. Anyone would tell you we're living at one of the most special places, if not the most special place in all of creation. But Neptune comes by and Saturn and then Jupiter, and you're like, okay, we're not all that big, even in our own little cul-de-sac.
notice the blue dot fading away is not the earth. That's Neptune. The earth has gotten too small to see anymore. Sirius comes by. Little plug for satellite radio. Not the biggest star, but the brightest star that we have found so far. Pollux, which we didn't mention. Arcturus. Such a beautifully named one, Regal. But then the one that messed me up. the size of our sun. You couldn't even do it. When you look at these and their relative size, we just have to put a little arrow over there that says, if you could put the sun on here, which you can, it would go somewhere about here. And um, can you hang on that for me? And when you see this, I don't know what happens to you, but I'll tell you what happens to me. A shrinking feeling comes over me, and it's not a bad shrinking feeling. It's a good shrinking feeling. Because sin... It has a a way of shrinking God down in our minds and puffing us up in our own estimation. But just a glance into the universe that God has made resizes everything in a heartbeat. And you realize tonight we are worshiping an unrivaled, uncontested God of all kind of might and power and glory and awe who is, there is none like Him anywhere in all of creation tonight. Well, having a perspective and an understanding of God that includes His beauty, His greatness, His majesty, and His holiness, His uniqueness, His otherness, changes us. And without this, we we actually, as he was alluding to, can be caught up in just our own world of self-indulgence that views God in terms of what He can do for us. And we can see the gospel that way. We can also be guilty of making God into our own image. A God that's acceptable to us, acceptable to others, other than He really is. We sometimes just want a God who makes us comfortable. But that's not our God. That's our God. Exodus 15.11 says, He is glorious in holiness. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Isaiah the prophet saw God in His holiness, and it changed him forever. I'd like to take a look. If you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. And Lord, we just ask you to open our eyes to see you today. Isaiah chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8, and then we're going, to, we're going to take a look at our God. Isaiah 6, 
Beginning in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the glory. I'm sorry, I've seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. So just a little background first. Isaiah was a prophet. He wasn't just any prophet. Um, Perhaps some have said he was the greatest prophet uh, in the Old Testament, in Israel. He spoke for God to the common people, but he also spoke to God to kings. He prophesied during the reign of four different kings. And this was a time of great crisis, great chaos, and a time of really great immorality and and really a decline in immorality. God's people were turning their backs on him. In fact, at the time of his prophecy, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive by invaders and the southern kingdom, Judah, was attacked by Assyria. These were unstable times. They were difficult times. And Isaiah had a very strategic ministry. Now, as I I read you that, that, doesn't that sound a lot like today? So, King Uzziah. He was actually a good king. He was a man of great influence. And really, there there was goodness in King Uzziah. Uh, And there was a lot of excellence in what he did. Um, And he reigned for 52 years. He was a a successful king. And he brought a lot of benefits to God's people. Well, really, the sad story of Uzziah is this, is that in the very end, pride lifted up his heart and he looked at all the things he had done, all his achievements um, that he'd given a time of peace from, from Israel's enemies. He had fortified uh, Jerusalem, brought security, developed agriculture and commerce, and he was filled with pride. And so God gave him terminal leprosy and he died. And really now, the people were feeling a a certain sense of panic. The king has died. There's a void in leadership and authority. What are we going to do now? And they became fearful. This is described a little bit about the situation over in Isaiah 22. You don't have to turn there, but over in verses 12 and 13. It said, Therefore, in that day the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving your head and to wearing sackcloth. Instead, there is gaiety, and gladness, the killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, the eating of meat and drinking of wine, and a familiar saying that Paul quotes in the New Testament as well, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. So instead of turning around and repenting and just rending their hearts before the Lord and bowing down before Him, they decided, let's live it up, you know, because tomorrow, none of this may be here, just might end tomorrow. And so that's how it was 
and King Uzziah dies. And so, Isaiah the prophet goes to the temple. We know that at least there was one among probably many God-fearing Jews. We know that there was one in the land and his name was Isaiah. Let's pick it up in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Now in the Old Testament, when we see the word Lord, if you see it, capital L and little letters, it actually refers to the word Adonai. If you see it in all capitals, L-O-R-D, it refers to Yahweh. And Yahweh really has reference to God's essential nature, that He is self-existent. It's the name He used in the very beginning to Moses, I Am, the great I Am. But Adonai has reference to God's sovereignty and His authority, His control over all. And as we read verse 1, we can now understand Isaiah sees the Lord. We've lost our human king, but there is a king in heaven on the throne, full of authority. That's our king. The human king was dead, but history doesn't depend on human kings, but on the absolute monarchy. The supreme Lord Adonai, God Himself. The supreme kingship. And so God, in the midst of crisis, let Isaiah see, and the people see, that all is not lost. He makes a personal appearance. And Isaiah sees Him, and he sees Him sitting on a throne the world around him coming apart. But there's no panic because God is on the throne. And isn't it great to know that even in today, God has not abdicated His throne? He is on the throne. And really, some of you may need to hear this today. And not so much because of what's going on in the world, but maybe what's going on in your life. You know, sometimes when you talk about God's authority and His holiness. That doesn't give us comfort. But in fact, it's one of the most secure things that, that we can know. And that that can be a comfort to us to know. Whether we're going through fear or grief, that we need to spend time with Adonai, the Lord, overall. In John twelve forty one, this really tells us a little bit more about who this God is. It says, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. He is in the presence of Jesus Christ on the throne. A Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Evidence of our God, the three in one. That Christ himself is on the throne. And this is who Isaiah is in the presence of. Verse 2. Above him were seraphim each. With six wings, with two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. So what is a seraphim? In the Bible we read of seraphims, we read of cherubims. Uh, the seraphim, this is really the only mention of the seraphim in Scripture. But these were angels who specifically were designed to worship God, to declare His holiness, His purity. They were kind of the keepers of God's holiness, um, a magnifying of God's holiness and His power. You know, they had six wings. And it's interesting, they really needed all of them. This wasn't by accident, these wings. Now, two of the wings it said they were flying around with because they were hovering around the presence of God, the throne of God. And then it said uh, with two, uh, they covered their face. They covered their face. It probably reminds you back uh, in Exodus 33 when Moses 
um, was still young in the Lord. And God said, I'm going to go with you to Egypt. And, and Moses said, well, that's really nice, Lord, but I need to see you. Would you show me your glory? And God said, I can't show you my glory because no man can see my glory and live. But what I'll do is I'll show you, literally, I'll show you my backside. And really what that was was kind of some afterglow. And even this afterglow that left Moses in a place where he was just beaming. And this is just on the periphery of the glory of God and His holiness. And then last, the two covered... His feet. Now, we can't be sure of what, what this is all about, but it certainly could represent this position of lowliness and humility, um, humble service. It could be, in, in a similar sense, related to wherever the presence of God is. It's all holy. Moses, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. But these creatures, if we were to see them, we would shrink down and just die in fear. We'd become a little puddle on the floor. And these creatures were worshiping God continually, awestruck in His presence, where His worship was their only response. Now, can you imagine just flying around forever and saying, holy, holy, holy? Just, just That's all you did. Um, no, and the reason you can't is because, nor can I, is we, we don't understand God's holiness. We don't understand who He is, His perfection. But these seraphim do. And they kept saying, holy, holy, holy. The earth is full of your glory. This is our great God. And really, holy, 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 is it's, it's the only time really that any of His attributes are, are, are said three different times. Interestingly enough, we don't hear love, love, love as the Lord God Almighty or mercy, mercy, mercy or grace, grace, grace or any other thing that you can think of. But we hear holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That repetition giving the profound focus on the Lord. That's not the only place that we, we see that. Um, one day when the disciples in the New Testament uh, uh, came to Jesus and said, how do we pray? And Jesus said, well, I'll tell you what, pray in this way. Our Father, chart in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy be your name. That should be the focus every time we approach our God. And Jesus modeled that for us. R.C. Sproul is a, is a writer who wrote a classic called The Holiness of God. And he says this, that any attempt to understand God apart from His holiness is idolatry. And we see in the Ten Commandments that you're to have no other gods before you. And that you are not to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We can use the word awesome for His glory, with His glory, and we have. To, I'm sorry, off my notes here. We can use the word awesome for so many things, or majestic, or powerful, or wow. But you know, our God is beyond all of that. Verse four: At the sound of their voices. The doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Now, this is like a good movie. Things are starting to amp up a little bit here. You know, it's like the volcano, you know, like Frodo going into the, taking the ring in there. There's fire everywhere. There's smoke coming up, uh, devastation. Um, 
And so the foundations of the place began to shake. And fire and smoke, which could have been coming from the altar, a manifestation of God's fiery presence, uh, just like at Mount Sinai that Moses saw. You see a holy God of judgment. And this isn't particularly one of God's manifestations of my mercy or my grace. This is God in His holiness. And the truth is, is that if we were to come into His presence, we would be consumed. Now, verses 1 through 4, we have encountered a holy God. And let me tell you, that is the beginning of the gospel. That's where the gospel begins. It doesn't begin with me or you. It begins with a holy God. And I would say to you that the only way we can come to the Lord is if we encounter a holy God and then we see ourselves for who we are. I just want you to keep that in mind. Now let's transition to man. Let's look at Isaiah's response. Verse 5. Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So Isaiah's reaction to encountering God. And you have to realize, remember who Isaiah was. He was no small man. He was a great man, a great prophet of God. What he didn't do was say, you know, hey, I've, I've had this great vision. You know what? I think I should get a book deal out of this. There's a movie here. There's a movie here. Come on. You know it. No. He didn't do any of that. He said, woe is me. And that's a sign of despair. In the Old Testament, as you know, prophets gave pronouncements. And, and their announcements were blessing at times. And the other times were curses. And those curses began many times with woe. Woe to you. And it was pronounced ten times in his own prophecy to refer to God's judgment on others. Jeremiah used it. Ezekiel used it. Nahum used it. Amos, Habakkuk, Hosea, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Micah, Jesus in Matthew 24. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. And the angels of judgment in Revelation use the word woe. And what's unique about this is not what the word means, but that the prophet of God was announcing a curse on himself. He was announcing a curse on himself. This is the best man in the land. And he is undone. He is destroyed. And then he says, For I am ruined. In the Hebrew, this word is Nemethi, which means to be lost or to perish or to be annihilated or to be destroyed. I'm destroyed. I'm devastated by the holiness of God. I am wiped out. I'm coming undone at the seams. I'm disintegrated. I don't know if you've ever been in a position like that. I haven't. I don't know that I can relate to that. Maybe we've come close at different times. Here's what... Uh, Here's what John MacArthur says about that. He says, because he saw God, and when he saw God, for the first time in his life, he saw Isaiah. And he knew how wretched he was. He may have been a secure fellow before this. Everybody honored him, patted him on the back, 
Everybody who was godly said he was the best of men, a spiritual leader, the voice of God, an obedient saint, a servant of the Lord. But one glimpse of God's holiness, and Isaiah was a wretch in his own eyes. And when you think of a prophet in the Old Testament, one of the most important things they did was speak. Right? And Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips. I've got a dirty mouth. And I live a bunch, a bunch of pe- with a bunch of people who have dirty mouths. This is what comes to him as he encounters the presence of God. So church, no one can stand in the presence of God without becoming profoundly and devastatingly aware of his own wretchedness and sinfulness. That's why I want to say this again. If we don't understand the holiness of God, we cannot understand our own sinfulness. And we don't understand how heinous it is, and we don't understand the consequences of it. And to see even the smallest glimpse of God's holiness is to truly be devastated. And Isaiah would never be the same. To see God as He is, you know what it does? Is it resizes you and I. It resizes us. Let's see how we're doing on time, because I really wanted to read this. We're not doing too good. So, we're doing good enough. If you have your Bibles, turn to Job chapter 38. Turn to Job chapter 38. I, I really want to read this. If you've never read this passage, Job chapter 38. You know, Job was a man who was a very godly man. I mean, the godliest of men. And God chose to allow him to be tried, to be put through the blender on this earth because Job was a faithful servant. And after a while, Job just started kind of getting you know, a little questioning about this thing. And... Then God responded to Job. And here's, here's what God says. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, this is chapter 38, verse 1, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who enclosed the sea with its doors? When bursting forth it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and I placed boundaries on it and I set a bolt and doors and I said, Thus far shall you come but no further. And here you shall pound your waves. Stop. And here shall your proud waves stop. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning, and cause the dawn to know its place. I, that is just phenomenal to me. That it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal and they stand forth like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld and the uplifted arm is broken. And I could go on and read more and more and more of this. But I do want to read in uh, Job's response when we get over to uh, chapter I would encourage you to read that. Read that section of particularly Job 38 all the way through 42. Here's in verse 40, in chapter 40, after the Lord had been talking a while, he said, The Lord said to Job, verse 1, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who proves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I'm insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand over 
my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer even twice, and I will add nothing more. Well, God's not done with Job. That's the first response. And then God says, okay, we're not done. He goes back uh, in chapter 40, rest of 40 and 41, and then finally in the beginning of 42, Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now, my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract. And I repent in dust and ashes. Job got it. Do we know who this God is? It's a lifetime journey, and I pray that we're all passionately on this journey. I know this much of God. But let's all have the desire to continue to get to know this God of ours. You know, lastly, there's a, there's a couple of other things about how people have responded to God. You know, one is, uh, I'll just give you one New Testament example. And this is, this is a pretty profound one. When you probably remember the story of when Peter, when, when the disciples had been out uh, fishing, caught no fish. And then uh, Jesus on the shore says, Hey guys, cast it over here. Cast it over there. Go back out. But, okay, we'll go back out. And they cast it over there, and then they obviously caught more fish. And, and the boat actually started to sink because they had so many fishes. Fish, sorry. And at that point, and then again, i got to find myself in my notes, which I just lost. Um, here we go. But when Simon Peter saw that, here, here, here's his response. He fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. This is what happens when he encountered Jesus. And, and what he saw in Jesus was, You're not just a man. You are God. And I am undone. I see myself for who I am in your presence. He realized at that moment the incredible miracle. He was standing in the presence of God. I, I don't want to be exposed. I don't want to be exposed. Get away from me. And it was, it's by the grace of God that you and I are not at this moment consumed by His holiness. Now, if He weren't a God of love, often, often we, when somebody paints a picture of, a whole, a picture of the holiness of God, we say, well, what about God's love? Well, if He wasn't, the God of love. We wouldn't be sitting here right now in this church. This is why for us to truly understand His great, great love, His amazing grace for us, we truly need to take that journey to understand His holiness, who He is. Verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And when it touched my mouth, and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah is devastated. He's utterly hopeless. And you know what it takes to get somebody to that point, to where they're purged out of themselves? It takes a broken and a contrite heart to face of the holiness of God. He was there. There's no cheap grace there, no easy believism there. Now, I'll probably 
Most of you won't have heard of John Bunyan. Some of you might. He was a great Puritan man. And he wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress. And this was written of him. He said that he had the sense of knowing, uh, that before he had the sense of knowing Jesus Christ, he agonized over his sin for no less than 18 months. It was painful. It's not easy. It takes a broken and a shattered heart and the pain of giving up sin and embracing the sovereign God. Verse 8 says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. You know what? You're undone. You're woeful. You're wretched. You see yourself who you are. And God reaches down. Does what only God can do. And what He did for Isaiah. And that's the forgiveness of his sin. The cleansing of Isaiah. So much so that he said, look at me, I've been cleansed, send me. I've been cleansed, send me. And you know what? If you're a believer today in Jesus Christ, that's where we stand before holy God. That we can say, I've been cleansed, send me. And you know what? If you've had an authentic experience with Jesus Christ, that He's coming and you've been born again, at some point, you will say, I've been cleansed, send me. That's what God does. And you know, the only way that any of us will ever be fit to serve the Lord is when we've been cleansed by His grace. So just to wrap up a little bit, uh, he finally he said, go and tell this people. He said, okay, Isaiah, go. So what we've, what we've talked about today, let me just summarize this up. We've actually talked about the gospel. A man encounters the holy God. He sees himself rightly as absolutely undone in the presence of this holy God. Unworthy. And God reaches to him with cleansing and forgiveness of his sin because of his great mercy and of his grace and his love. And the man responds with, Here, my Lord, send me. I'll go. And God sends him and he goes. Now, you know, all of this, I think, looks at the cross. You know, the cross is like the live coal that touched the lips of Isaiah. It purifies us. And without that, we would be consumed in the presence of the Holy God. So as now as we close and move towards the Lord's Supper, I just want to leave you with a few things that, that this would motivate us. One, to bow down before the Lord and thank Him for His everlasting love, His great grace and mercy that came to you so that we might stand in the presence of the Holy God. And let this so penetrate you that you never, ever look down on anyone again. Because there's absolutely nothing that you sitting here today have done that would ever make you a judge over anyone else. That you stand here, you sit here today by the great grace and mercy of the Lord. And that we should look out at others and have a desire to go and to tell them about His great, great love. And really, the, another piece of this is to allow God's holiness to so overtake you that you hate your sin. And that you take it very seriously. But not because of what it's doing to you. Because it robs God of His glory. And I believe that's a very important mind shift 
that many of us, me included, need to make. That this is about God's glory. But I love John Piper when he says this. The trick of it is, is that we find our greatest enjoyment in glorifying God. When we glorify God with our lives, we are as joyful as we will ever be. We won't find any greater joy on this planet. Those two are inextricably linked. And finally, to passionately pursue God's holiness in your life so that you might live for the ultimate goal of glorifying God in this generation. So if the praise team will come, I want to close with this last slide here. I guess it's already up there. As we come full circle from this awesome holy God to our Lord Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross. These are three things that John Piper said. Jesus Christ. The holiness of God made tolerable that we are not consumed. Thank you, Lord Jesus. The holiness of God made accessible to you and I. Thank you, Lord. And the holiness of God made our greatest joy. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this time, we just want to stand silently as we think of your greatness and your holiness. Lord, I don't know each heart here today, each person here today, how this word might have affected them in different ways. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use it in the way only you can. You know every need. Lord, we leave that to you. We worship you today. We worship you.